0: Retrogram. Revisiting TV futures from the past. An examination of yesteryear's television science fiction, fantasy, spy-fi, horror, and superhero shows. Commencing Retrogram. Number 7342B One More Survivor of the Saturday Night Massacre The Week of October 14, 1973 Welcome back to Retrogram, the Logbook.com's retro TV podcast that picks a week between 1970 and 1990, rewatches all of that week's sci-fi, horror, superhero, fantasy, and spy-fi shows, and offers up a fresh assessment of the state of genre TV in the past. But this is an orphan episode. Let's rewind a bit to explain this. The very first retrogram, if you recall, was colorfully titled Saturday Morning Cartoons' Saturday Night Massacre because it dealt with programming, most but not all of it, in the Saturday Morning Kids programming category that coincided with former American President Richard Nixon's Saturday Night Massacre, an event when, at the height of the Watergate investigation, he used the powers vested in him as the executive branch of the United States government to dismiss personnel appointed to investigate whether or not Nixon was involved in a cover-up surrounding a break-in at the Democratic Party headquarters at the Watergate Hotel in Washington, D.C. That wasn't a coincidence, either. Right around the time the retrogram dropped, quite a few people were expecting President Trump to do the exact same thing. I figured at the time I dropped that very first retrogram, there was about a 50-50 chance of it having happened by the time the podcast landed. Of course, thankfully, the exit sign leading us away from this absolutely insane era of American politics can be seen ahead. It's still a bit distant, but it's still there, and still offering hope that as a nation and as a people, we might just get our heads screwed on right. By the way, to those not living within this country's borders, allow me as an American to offer my sincere apologies for the last four years. I didn't vote that man in, but I sure as hell voted to get him out of there because... You know, I want my kids and your kids to have a world to grow up in. But also, if you recall, there was a show from that week that was missing in its entirety. An episode of the wonderful Anglia TV series Orson Welles' Great Mysteries. The reason the show is on the retrogram list in the first place is that it's an all-star anthology series that frequently dips into classics of supernatural storytelling, and because the wonderful network distributing had just issued the first of two DVD sets of the series, which I promptly snapped up at the time. And to my horror, the episode of Orson Welles' Great Mysteries that aired the weekend of Nixon's Saturday Night Massacre wasn't in the first box set. Go figure. Oops. But Network did, just recently, as in the past couple of months, release the rest of the series in a second DVD set, which I ordered for myself as a kind of housewarming gift to myself in my new place. And here we are, ready to tackle some unfinished business from the very first retrogram, and ready to symbolically tie off this era of American politics by extension. Those are two great things to celebrate. (laughs) And Wells' Great Mysteries, Season 1, Episode 8, Unseen Alibi, aired Saturday, October 20th, 1973, on Anglia TV and in other regions of the UK on ITV. Invited to London by a fashion model he hardly knows, American bachelor Jerry Norton arrives at the appointed place at the appointed time, checks himself in the mirror, and, as instructed, opens the door of her nicely appointed apartment and walks in. No one seems to be here. Hello. There's a framed photo of a man, which is a bit odd, since Jerry thought his date was, uh, single and available. And he wanders from room to room until he finds himself face to face with the man from the picture. Well, okay, it's technically that man's corpse. He's super dead. He's been stabbed. Jerry accidentally finds the knife nearby by putting his hand on it. Well, that's his fingerprints on the murder weapon. He panics, he runs, right into a group of police constables outside the apartment. Jerry is detained by Detective Inspector Hud. But why were they there if they hadn't already seen and secured the body as evidence? A resident in a neighboring apartment called them after saying they witnessed the attack. And the apartment does, in fact, belong to the man whose body Jerry was found with, who happens to have been the fashion model's husband. Where is she? New York. But didn't Jerry just come from New York? But that's where she called from when the police told her her husband had been murdered. So when did the neighbor make that call? It was at a time that Jerry was still in a taxi cab, making its way haltingly through London traffic. But it's not like Jerry got the cab driver's number, and he has no way to prove that. The only detail he can provide is that the hall porter at the apartment building was engrossed in watching a tennis match on TV. Wait, was that the first match of the day at Wimbledon by some chance? Because if so, it turns out Jerry was not there when the murder happened. So what about the call from the neighbor who was the killer? Turns out the dead man was killed by his house servant who was in cahoots with the neighbor who was having an affair with the fashion model wife who met Jerry in New York, saw how smitten he was with her and decided to set him up as the fall guy, the perfect decoy. And it would have worked if not for that non-meddling porter watching Wimbledon. Jerry is a free man. He goes home to the Big Apple, but not before buying tickets for the next year's opening day at Wimbledon and gifting them to the hotel porter. Stop thinking with the little head, Jerry. The end. I actually found it distracting how much smoking happens in this 25-minute piece of TV. At times, there is so much tobacco smoke in the air that it's almost hard to see facial expressions or really take in the details of the set. It's like they paid the cast in cigarettes and pipe tobacco instead of currency. Between the cast here and Mr. Wells himself doing the intro and outro you know, with a cigar in his mouth the whole time, how much of a line item in this show's budget was tobacco? Unseen Alibi stars Dean Stockwell as Jerry Norton, Dean is so young here, and yet Dean is in his late thirties here, so he's not that young. But so much of what we associate Dean with, especially if your biggest point of identification with him is, say, Quantum Leap, is based around a character type that he became very good at. Curmudgeonly, middle-aged at the very least, crotchety, funny. It's just jaw-dropping to see him this young. And yet there's a lot of that trademark characterization here, too. Even though he's got this giant helmet of curly hair, complete with a little curly ponytail, and he's got one of those weird little beaded ties that were so very, very 70s. That's what I really like about shows from the past, whether it's from 1973 or 2003, it's a time capsule. Now, this definitely is not the greatest of Orson Welles great mysteries. Really far from it, actually. The real mystery here is how exactly Jerry Norton has any chance of walking free, because we, the audience, know he didn't commit the crime. Like most ITV shows, this episode is broken up into Part 1 and Part 2 with a, you know, there was room for a commercial break in between, because ITV, unlike the BBC, was a commercial broadcaster and showed ads. Part 1 sets things up pretty well. Part 2 is the letdown. It's basically just one long chunk of exposition as Inspector Hud explains what's really happened, though it fails the smell test of reality because it's not until the very end of the show that Jerry is explicitly told, you're off the hook, you can go free. He should have been told that a lot earlier, but the show needs a reason to keep him sequestered in that room long enough for everything to be explained, not just to him, but to the audience. There really are no other significant characters in the story who need this explained, so Jerry is left wriggling on the hook because if he's not there, there's no way to convey all of this information to those watching the show. Columbo it ain't. Clumsy it is. Since so much of the story happens in that one room, effectively making it something of a two-act play captured on tape, the blocking and staging are occasionally kind of weird, Some of the performances are a little stilted, and it's one of those instances where you can see the hand of the director and the writer moving the pieces on the board, rather than something happening where you're thinking, okay, this is what would really happen, and this is how these people would really act. See also, no one telling Jerry that they know he's not the killer. I'm not familiar with the story that this episode's script is based on, and I literally could not find any information on it that wasn't about this episode. So I don't know if the literary source for Unseen Alibi handles any of this more gracefully than the television adaptation. It is neat to see Dean Stockwell relatively early in his career, though I find myself wondering, and not for the first time in watching this series with its frequently transatlantic casting, how well the acting styles of the American and British cast members meshed, and how that affected the direction of the show. Stockwell is really stagey here, And, you know, I'm just going to lay my bias bare. The smoking really bothers me. It's like the actors have no other props. I get that it's visual shorthand, that Jerry's under a tremendous amount of stress, but it also becomes the only prop Dean Stockwell has to work with, aside from once or twice getting to brandish the magazine whose cover shows the face of the model, who is supposedly the object of his character's affections. So, was it any big loss that... This one got left out in the cold by that very first Retrogram? Probably not, but now we can say we covered everything in the Retrogram wheelhouse that was on TV that week. And there it is, a Retrogram orphan brought in from the cold at last, thanks to Network's DVD releasing arm. And thanks to you, too, this episode is going out initially to the Logbook.com's Patreon supporters, and your support helps keep this show and the whole site alive, and lets me get a hold of these gems from the past when they're released on shiny round things, so I can share these stories with you. So that's a big end-of-the-year shout-out to everyone supporting the logbook, supporting Retrogram, and supporting me. There have been times this accursed year when Patreon was feeding me and my cats and not buying DVDs. For that, you have my gratitude. So, 2021, let's come to an agreement, shall we? It'll be a little while before we have a vaccine available to everyone, so the first part of 2021, let's face it, it's going to resemble a lot of 2020. Regardless of new leadership in the U.S. government, the die has been cast, and we have the mistakes of the previous regime as the new regime's starting conditions. So the first half of 2021 may suck as much as 2020 did. We're at a place now where what it comes down to is that kindness and compassion are going to become the only real currency in the face of a disease that doesn't care how much money anyone has. Pretty soon the real test will not be how well we can insulate ourselves against it, but how well we're able to comfort those who can't. Stay kind. That's the only thing that's going to turn this new year around. The Retrogram Podcast was researched, written, and hosted by Earl Green. The show's theme music was composed and performed by Jazar and licensed under Creative Commons. You can find his work at betterwithmusic.com and at freemusicarchive.org. If you like Retrogram, give a big thanks to the Logbook.com's Patreon supporters, folks like Kevin, Darwin, Cindy, Paul, and Ferg and Mark. Holy crap, that's like six people! If you love Retrogram, join them as a patron or support us another way. Every little bit helps keep TheLogbook.com and its podcasts and videocasts going. Find out more at Patreon.com slash TheLogbook, or if you want to help out without the ongoing commitment, throw a coffee our way at ko-fi.com slash TheLogbook. You can also support the site by buying t-shirts, mugs, and non-medical-grade face masks and other goodies from our store at thelogbook.redbubble.com, or you can order all sorts of things through our affiliate links at thelogbook.com slash store from places like Amazon and eBay. If you need to catch up on Star Trek Discovery, Star Trek Picard, or Star Trek Lower Decks, sign up for a free week of CBS All Access through our links, and if you decide to stay as a subscriber, that helps The Logbook and Retrogram out a lot. If you can't remember those links, that's cool too. Visit the show page at thelogbook.com slash Retrogram and you'll find them all there. A huge thanks to everyone who has kept Retrogram and me afloat in 2020. Let's all escape this year alive and make sure that the new year is nothing like it. And we can all agree to write off 2020 as a bad sci-fi plot that tried to stuff way too many disasters and way too many weird intrigue plot twists into one story. No one is ever going to believe that. You know what you can believe, though? Retrogram will return. And Retrogram is a production of thelogbook.com.